Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, it is an astounding grace and privilege to be crucified with you. But it's so hard for us to recognize and accept this as it is happening in our lives. We want to be purified of the selfish tendencies hidden in us. Lord, even if we squirm, keep working on us. Teach us silence from the talkative, toleration from the intolerant, and kindness from the unkind. And yes, teach us to be grateful for these teachers. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title of the sermon is Bewailing the Desolate Condition of the Church. And our text this morning is Psalm 74. For many Christians, it's not okay to be down. It's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to cry. It's not okay to be afraid. It's not okay to struggle. It's not okay to be angry. It's not okay to question God. And it's certainly not okay to fail. Maybe that's why Christians struggle so much with death. I wonder if that might be the reason. Let me ask you a question. When when is it that Christianity became a way of medicating ourselves from pain rather than living within the pain? When did that happen? Make no mistake about it, Christians are in pain. The church, constituting the single body around the entire world, is in the midst of a terrible, in some ways an unprecedented crisis of faith. Christ's church is being ripped from all sides, both within and without. Overwhelming numbers of cases of sexual abuse are being reported in the Catholic church. And as we Protestants... Imagine most of us in this room are Protestants. As we look on, we look inside our own houses and we see many of the same things happening in our churches. And it's not just progressive Protestants, it's evangelical Protestants as well. Moral failure is increasing at alarming proportions, both in the clergy and the lay leaders in all sectors of the church. Christian families are rocked. And too many times shattered into unnecessary separation. There's so much rebellion, neglect, and spiritual atrophy in Christ's church. Orthodoxy is being challenged by all kinds of militant forces. But I also believe, also believe that God's spirit is already bringing about renewal and hope in the midst of this. Cleansing and right orientations that will only come about when faithful Christians repent of their sins and pray also for their brothers and sisters to repent of their sins. We must begin with our own houses and seek to order rightly, as St. Augustine said, our own affections toward Christ. We must live as people who are faith-filled and faithful, as Wesley would say, to a growing evangelical repentance and the baptism and the sanctified life in in Christ. We must receive love from our good Father and then demonstrate that love to 
God's household of faith and to our enemies. And while we bear our own crosses, we must be people of hope in the certain surety of the resurrection. And where there is explicit and implicit evil, we have to discern how God will have us combat that evil. We need wisdom desperately in the church. Our current crisis is being used, I believe, by the Spirit to open up the church, sometimes with great force, to a fuller understanding of ecclesiology, the structure of the church. It's time for us to discern God's presence in the history of His people and not to be administrators or spectators. That's not our place. It's time for all bishops and pastors and priests and deacons, and lay leaders, and yes, all seminarians, all people affiliated with Asbury Seminary who have the great privilege of being formed theologically and spiritually with all these wonderful riches to exhibit, yes, humility, yes, repentance, and yes, conversion. Will you join me in that growing opportunity of intimacy with Christ through his sufferings, as we hear from God in his holy word today, I invite you to pray with me this corporate prayer of lament, this corporate cry of help in Psalm 74, because our churches are in a mess. Our church is in a a mess, and we are called to pray for the church. So let me begin here with um, what what are the common elements in a corporate prayer for help in the Psalms? There are several of these, or many of these actually, in the Psalter. Thanks be to God. Uh, what do we look for? We look for often six things, and they're not always these six things, but many times we have these. The psalmist will address God in a very brisk and short kind of way because they're upset, and that's what people do when they're upset. They offer complaints regarding troubles. They raise petitions to God to hear and to help, and then they recount the past acts of God's salvation. And then they confess trust in God. And at at the end, they typically vow a praise to God. That's what they do. That's what the people have God have done in our prayer book for us. Now, I want to make this as simple as I can. I believe this this was somebody else's idea, and I think it works really well to understand the psalm. This is, is, um, let's see if I can get that next slide there. There we go. How do we get the full impact of a psalm in our life? Three things, we get it, we feel it, and we want it. Let me explain. We get it. We've got to become more like a music teacher than a science teacher because it's going to take more than analysis to get it. We have to learn the lyrics and the parallelism of the poetry because the Psalms are poetry. And then when we get that kind of impact, we have to feel it. We have to feel it. We have to learn the tune in line with the words so that we can feel the affectation affection of that prayer and finally if we want that full impact of the prayer to come into our lives we got to feel it we actually have to want it I should say we've got to want it so once we've got the words and once we felt the tune there's a decision to be taken with the psalm as to whether we're going to sing it from our own hearts are we going to allow it to affect our own will because we're not playing games in prayer we're praying so that we can be changed that's why we pray God doesn't need changing. We need changing. We've got to want it. We've got to want it. 
So I invite you now to look in your bulletin, your worship bulletin, and follow along with me in this psalm, Psalm 74. If you need to make notes, feel free to do so. The first thing I want to mention here is that we as a church, let's see if I've got that here pointed on the right, sorry. Thank you. We've got to pray for Christ's church by expressing a very intense grief. That's what verses 1 through 11 are all about in this psalm. Psalm 74 begins with a a description of of a very important time in Israel's history, 587 B.C. And most of us, and hopefully all of us, after we leave the room today, will know why that's so important in the Bible. It's important because Jerusalem was sacked. Jerusalem was torn apart. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The exile of the king happened. The king was the covenant person of God, and they were taken out of Israel. The priests were taken out. And the people left Israel. If you're familiar with the psalm, you know that there's five books in the psalm, right? And so book three, book three, which is Psalm 73 to 89, has a very strong feel of exile to it. I want you to take some time, maybe in the next several weeks if you can, and read through those psalms because that's where the exile is felt the strongest. Psalm 79 says, The nations have come into your inheritance. This Asaphite who penned this psalm, feels the grief intensely. Listen to what he says. There's the smoke of the shepherd against his sheep. He's our good shepherd, but the smoke is, is, is palpable. He says, we are purchased people. We're, pur- we're bought by you, God. We were on Mount Zion where you dwelt. Why? Why? Feel the pain, the how long? implies perhaps the exile has been going on for some time for this person of God. Was he an eyewitness? We don't know. Verse 3, he says, direct your steps and come and look at the perpetual ruins. I love that imagery, perpetual ruins. He describes it so vividly. The enemies are roaring like lions. They set up signs in the temple, these enemies. Verses 5 and 6, feel the misery. The beauty is destroyed. The carvings of the sanctuary are ripped apart. 1 Kings 6 tells us that the the people of God use cedar. They use cypress and olive wood and cherubim and flowers. Why? Because they wanted the temple to look like the Garden of Eden. And all that beauty is destroyed. The place where God dwells on earth has been trashed. Trashed. They stripped the gold overlay in verse 7. They set it on fire. They dirtied and profaned God's house. Verse 8, feel the hostility. The enemy will utterly subdue and burn the meeting places. This is where the lovers meet, God and his people. Gone, gone. Misery, pain, and agony. And then in verses 9 and 10, He says, we do not see our signs. We don't see the signs any longer. So just as God, the great lover, has given his people signs in the covenant, those signs of love are gone. And then in verse 11, he goes, God, why don't you take your hand out of your pocket? Get your sword out of your sword hand and destroy our enemies, he says. I don't know about you, but that's pretty aggressive language towards God. That's in the Bible. 
There's something for us to learn today. Let me ask you a question. Did that grief resonate with you? Well, of course, the pious answer is yes, right? Okay, everybody says yes. yes sir. But the honest answer is probably for most of us no, right? We want to say, what a shame that that person's upset. But I'm not upset like he's upset. I wish I, I, wish I wanted what I want to want. Think about that for a minute. I wish I wanted what I want to want. Because I want to want godliness. That's what I want. I want purity is what I want. I want love. I want the honor of God in my life. I want to hate wickedness is what I want. I want to be, I want, I want to detest evil. That's what I want. But actually, my affections are all over the place. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I hope you'll be honest with yourself as well. At one moment, I want the glory of God. And the next, next, I want everybody to tell me how great I am. Thankfully, I have my wife who helps me in that area a lot. Thanks be to God. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a real blessing. If you don't have somebody in your li- in life like that, you need somebody. Maybe not a spouse, but you need a, a friend or somebody to do that. I wonder how many clergy, I wonder how many lay leaders, I wonder how many seminary people struggle with this. Disordered affections. Here's the thing about the Psalms. As I gradually get inside the Psalms and make the Psalms my own prayers, I see the Spirit of God working in me so that I begin to love what God loves. I begin to want what God wants. I begin to hate what God hates. That's the great reason for praying the Psalms regularly in your life. I can't emphasize that enough. I started this journey about six years ago, and it's really transforming my life. I'm on a road to progress, not perfection, but I am learning a lot. You read this grief of the Psalm, and you think that this Asaphite felt it. Then you remember a man in the New Testament. You know him well. You read how he wept over Jerusalem. A man who felt the grief of Psalm 74 really intimately. And he saw the place where God was meant to dwell on earth, where God met with his people, and how he grieved that it had been trashed and vandalized and that it lay in ruins. The temple had not even been destroyed physically until 70 AD, but Jesus saw it in ruins right before his very eyes. And then in Christ, you and I begin to feel the the same way. I would love to hear from everybody in this room, people, every member of our community. I'd love to hear from every pastor that I know here in this community and hear what is going on in your heart and what you've come from in the last week in your church. I'd love to do that. We don't have time this morning, but that'd be an interesting conversation to have. I bet that some of you are coming from churches that are really struggling. Some of you may have come from churches where there have been painful splits, and we're seeing that in a denominational way as well. Some of you come from churches that are outwardly thriving, but inwardly there are all kinds of messed up lives in your church. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Calvin, the great reformer, said of this psalm, and this is where I got my title. Always good to steal from the reformers. The people of God are bewailing the desolate condition of the church. That's what Calvin said about this psalm. And I can say with confidence Utter confidence that your churches are in ruins. Every church is in ruins. 
Whatever your church looks like, it is nowhere near it needs to be to be the bride of Christ. It's messed up. The pastoral leadership team is struggling with sin and darkness in all sorts of ways. The members are struggling. The people on the outside, on the fringe, people unconverted who are claiming to be converted. Never mind how together it looks. And this is a comment on the human condition as well as the church of Christ. These first 11 verses teach us in Christ to grieve deeply for the state of the church. We are also taught to grieve for the persecuted church. One of the great things about praying the Psalms is that we pray them, um, we pray them corporately as the people of God. Now, even if we are praying them privately or on our own, it's never just a me and God thing. That's why we've got to pray them together. The Psalms are us in Christ. So who cares if a Psalm resonates with me or you? Really. They are the corporate prayers of the people in Christ. I think of that church who had an evangelical pastor who doesn't have one anymore. What's happened in that church, I wonder? The gospel seems lost to a long history in an evangelical church. And I imagine if we sat here and talked for a while, we'd have all kinds of stories, many, many ways that we feel this grief over Christ's church. But the psalmist moves on, and he teaches us. He teaches us to pray for Christ's church, expressing confidence in the power of God. This is in verses 12 to 17. Here we see an extraordinary change of key in verses 12 to 17. Beginning with the word yet or but. The psalmist by the Spirit of Christ says, you know, there's something I believe about God. I'm not just going to cry for help. I'm going to tell you what I believe about God. And this something that I believe engages the thing that I grieve. What does he believe? He believes in verse 12 that God, his king, is from of old. He looks back to the Exodus. He says, that's not far enough back. I'm going to look back to creation. He works salvation in the midst of the earth, says the psalmist. He says here in the poetry, I remember something fundamental about God, my king, that engages deeply with the state of Christ's church. Look at verse 13. He says, God, you divided or split open the sea by your might. You know, if you've read enough scripture, you know what the sea represents. The sea is that chaos, that darkness and death and disorder and hostility toward God and toward the people of God. That's pretty relevant when you're talking about drunken vandals coming in and trashing God's temple. It's also pretty relevant if you're talking about people coming in into the church with these monstrous forces wreaking havoc in the church. When you see the church divided by a needless split, when you have seen a church wrecked by a pastor's scandal of sin, when you've seen a church trashed by persecution all around the world, when you've seen a church gradually slip into uselessness through compromise with their culture, when you've seen that, it helps to remember that God divided the sea by his might, that he is sovereign over evil. And then he continues here. He says, look, look at this language in verses 13 and 14. You broke the heads of the sea monsters. You broke the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the wilderness. Leviathan, that great storybook monster in, in the Bible, 
We see it in Job and Psalms and Isaiah. And then if we look in our New Testament, we see that dragon, that many-headed serpent, the one that the book of Revelation calls Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent. Friends, there are monsters at work in our churches. There are monsters at work in our churches. Supernatural forces of evil trampling on God's moral order. They go in with axes and places where God lives on earth and trash it with false teaching, with moral compromise, hostility from the outside, disorder from the inside, and in all other sorts of ways. But this believer, and ultimately the Lord Jesus, affirms this confidence that God, my King, works salvation in the midst of the earth. He is the one who draws limits to evil. He is the one who can use evil for his, his purposes. Thanks be to God. And then in verse 15, he says, God, you can part water so that dry land appears both in creation and in the Red Sea. And then in verses 16 and 17, he says, the day, the night, the establishment of the heavenly bodies, the boundaries, the order of space, he says. Summer and winter is more than just physical boundaries. It speaks of moral boundaries as well. If you're a parent or you remember your own parents, hopefully, we use this language with our children, don't we? Discipline our children with boundaries. This far, but no further. This far, but no further. That's a moral boundary. In a world where there are no or little moral boundaries which are being trashed, And in churches where the world is invading the church, where the moral boundaries are being trashed. And in our own hearts, in which we experience that same struggle with darkness, it's a wonderful thing to know and to experience. That God, my Savior, my King, is working salvation in the midst of the earth. It's a wonderful thing to know that salvation is guaranteed by creation. That's a wonderful thing. So thus far, the psalmist has said, I want you to grieve with me at this mismatch between the promises of God and the, and the state of the church. But you not only do that, I want you to believe with me that God has got power and authority to change what we see in front of us. And so he moves us then into the final part here. This is uh, his last point, if you will. He says, we're called to pray for Christ's church by expressing our pleas and our petitions to God, our ongoing pleas and petitions in verses 18 through 23. And so, in verse 18, he says, Lord, remember your enemies. In verse 19, he says, don't deliver the soul of your dove. That's an evocative phrase for the people of God, a dove. We are vulnerable to the wild beast. We are vulnerable to Leviathan. We are vulnerable to the monsters. Don't forget the life of your poor, O God. Verse 20, don't forget your covenant because of the darkness in our land. Think of the church in the dark places. Many of us have done this ourselves. We're there on Sunday smiling, looking the part, right? But inside our hearts, there's all kinds of darkness, One of the things that should frighten all of us as pastors and Christian ministers is how easy it is to look the part. So hear me, Asbury, someone who's done this and experienced this. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with people around you who can help you because it will lead to burnout. 
It'll lead to all kinds of things that you don't want to happen in your life. There's nothing good about dishonesty. Now, there's an appropriate way to handle that. Don't get me wrong. But it's not good for us just to look the part. We're not in it. We're not in a play. We're in real life. This is a real thing that's going on here. It's perfectly possible for us ministers to read the scriptures, to preach, to lead people in prayer, and do just about everything in the service with darkness in our hearts all the while. Maybe there's a sin that we haven't confessed. Might be with our spouse. Hmm. Maybe our friends. Maybe the people in the church we need to rectify things with. It would be so much easier if we could not do anything while there was darkness in our hearts because that would make it so much easier for us. But I don't know about you, but I've got a great capacity for hypocrisy. I don't know about you. I can go right on and there are dark places in the land. And then he says, he finishes his prayer in verses 21 to 23. He says, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise up against you, which goes up continually. A cry for help. A cry to trust in God. A a cry to pray to God, really, genuinely to God here as the people of God. What a refreshing thing. What a refreshing thing. So friends, as we grieve a liberal theology, eroding confidence in truth, as we grieve the prosperity gospel, eroding a willingness to sacrifice, as we grieve materialism, eroding a willingness to give, as we grieve sexual chaos, eroding our family lives, as we grieve a culture of celebrity and entertainment in the church, eroding maturity and depth, as we grieve a parting and party spirit breaking our churches, as we grieve our own broken lives, broken churches and broken nations, as we grieve the darkness and disorder in our own hearts. All around, we look at the ruins of what ought to be a glorious church. God help us. God help us. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear the cries of our prayer today. Help us to move with our cries of help into a time of trust and a time of pleading with you, O God. In the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.